This is Damian O'Connell with the War Fighting Society. Welcome to the 10th episode of our new podcast, Controversy and Clarity, where we like to generate critical discussion, challenge ideas that need challenging, and share with you the insights and ideas of our guests. I should note that this marks the last episode of our first season. It's been a tremendous learning experience for me, and despite many glitches and gaffes, I'm looking forward to our second season, where we'll put everything we've learned so far into making a better, more high-quality show for you, our listeners. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Uh, we hope you found the conversations useful. And if you have any comments, questions, or curses, please don't hesitate to send them to our email address, thewarfightingsociety at gmail.com. For our guest today, we are very pleased to host our dear friend, Gunnery Sergeant Neil McCoy, United States Marine Corps. Neil is a career-long infantryman. He joined the Marine Corps in October 2008 and graduated from Marine Corps Recru Recruit Depot in San Diego in January 2009. Following infantry training at School of Infantry West, a.k.a. SOI West, Neil joined 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, where he served as a machine gunner. During his time with the battalion, Neil served with Combined Anti-Armor Team 2, first as a heavy machine gunner, then a vehicle commander, and finally as a section leader. He deployed twice with the battalion, once with the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, and then with the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit. Neil left the battalion as a sergeant in March 2013, for Marine Corps Combat Instructor School West. After graduating as the honor man for his Combat Instructor School class, Neil served as a squad advisor at the Advanced Machine Gun Course as part of the Advanced Infantry Training Battalion at SOI West. And during this period, Neil also attended the Infantry Unit Leaders Course, or IULC, and was once more recognized as the class honorman. Neil was then meritoriously promoted to Staff Sergeant and assigned as a squad leader to the Infantry Small Unit Leaders Course, or ISOLC. While serving at ISOLC, Neil and his fellow instructors implemented a new and redesigned version of the course, which became, in my view and the view of many others, one of the best courses available for Marine infantry leaders. In June 2016, following his service at SOI West, Neil reported to 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, and served as a platoon sergeant for 2nd Platoon, Lima Company. During this time, Neil and Lima Company deployed to Australia as part of Marine Rotational Force Darwin. In November 2017, following the deployment, Neil joined Weapons Company and became the platoon sergeant for Com Combined Anti-Armor Team 1. Neil held this billet until August 2018 when he was assigned as the platoon commander of Combined Anti-Armor Team 2. Then in 2018, Neil deployed as part of the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Purpose, I'm sorry, Air, Air Ground Task Force Purpose Crisis, Crisis Response Central Command 19.1. He was assigned as the security force commander of a mission support site in Advanced Operating Base East, Syria, and attached to a U.S. Army Special Forces team. Neil was promoted to gunnery sergeant in November 2018 and served as the security force commander until March 2019. When Neil returned home, he went to serve as the assistant regimental operations chief for the 7th Marine Regiment. Since January 2020, Neil has been serving as the Operations Chief for the Infantry Weapons Officer Course in Quantico, Virginia. Neil, Neil is also an author and has written for the Marine Corps Gazette on enlisted professional military education and combat marksmanship, and has another article coming out in the Gazette on maneuver warfare. Finally, I'd like to also add that Neil is, is not only our first enlisted Marine guest, uh, but also our first active duty Marine. Uh, all of our other Marine guests have been retired, so we're especially excited to have Neil with us. And of course, the standard disclaimers uh, apply that Neil's views are his own and that he does not represent uh, the Marine Corps or, their, or any parts thereof. Neil, 
so good to have you. Thanks for joining us. It's, it's, it's a real honor to, to have you on the show. Really glad to be here, brother. I appreciate it. So, Neil, to start things off, uh, you know, I should say, for a lot of our episodes, we've, we've really looked at professional military education. We've looked at training. Um, we, we've tried to look at the commonalities, the differences between the two. What, in your eyes, is training? What is professional military education? Where do the differences lie? Where do they overlap? So I stole my definition from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roy Quinn, and I learned that while he was te- while he was with me at ISOLC. He he used to say training and educate. So training is is for the known, right? Things that we can touch, things that we can feel, and then education is for the unknown or training training mental proficiencies for the unknown environments that are going to come up in uh, in your military career or during the profession at arms or what have you. Um, and so. I equate really training to tra- when I tell Marines, I talk about training and readiness tasks, right? Anything in the TNR manual that has a condition, a standard and performance steps, that's absolutely training, right? That, those are, those are things that I can elicit a stimulus and then try to get a specific response back from the Marines, right? That's all, that's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then education, really what I'd like to try to do is sharpen mental proficiencies so that we can utilize that training in an environment of chaos, disorder, and friction, right? So whether it's through decision forcing cases or it's through guided discussions or um, historical, you know, just historical case studies, just studying military theory and history, um, that's, that's, what I, that's what we talk about when we're talking about education. At least that's the way I see it, um, it is really developing a mental proficiency for later on use, whether that be in training or combat or the real world, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it's more, it's more than just simply getting a stimulus or getting a question from a person and then giving a response back. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. In the, in the Marine Corps, Neil, do you, do you get the sense that we, we value one over the other, that we value training over education or education over training? And if so, um, you know, could you give any example? On the enlisted side, yes, I do. So very much the enlisted side focuses on training rather than education. And I think we're at a point uh, that maybe we're starting to lean towards the other way where we want to f- facilitate more education on the enlisted side. Because if you look at the disparities between you know officer and enlisted PME um, or the time that they're spending in the educational institutions, an enlisted person only gets... 42 weeks total if you hit every single level of educational institution. I'm talking about from private to sergeant major. If you hit every single one, you're in there for less than a year. You know, there's some people that get lucky and get to go to extra schools, but that's not always the case. And it's definitely not a requirement for promotion. So I would say that training absolutely takes precedence in the enlisted community mostly because probably a lot of our job, especially combat arms, MOSs, um, at the lower levels consist of just hard skills, right? Mm -hmm. There doesn't necessarily need to be um, an educated person per se uh, at every level of the squad or the platoon or the company, as long as you have those key staff and COs and officers that have some, some, uh, some formal education behind them. But if you look at the direction that we're going, you know, Littoral, urban littoral or littoral regiments, disaggregated operations where a squad's going to be guarding a missile site in the middle of Pacific somewhere, you know, that 
now we're starting to think, okay, I, I think there's probably some room for more education in the enlisted community. And I think some people are kind of leaning towards that, or at least we're, we hope that they are. Sure, sure. Now, Neil, you joined, you joined the Marine Corps in uh, 2008, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been some time, right? You're now a gunnery sergeant. Yep. How, what, was, what was professional military education like when you first joined the Marine Corps? Um, for me, I mean, it rhymes with zero, right? That's, <laughs> that's really what it is. Uh, when you went to a school, it was about getting physically thrashed and learning the tasks, you know, for me as a machine gunner, mm -hmm. they called it professional military education, but there really wasn't. It was all mastering the training and readiness tasks that were approved for the program of instruction. And that's really what it was. <clears throat> we had MCIs mm -hmm. uh, that people called education. Again, wrote memorization of facts in order to pass a specific test and then get that certification onto your MOL or your Marine net so that you look better for a promotion board. Mm. Um, so I didn't really see, uh, in my, in my eyes, I didn't really see true education until I got to, uh, advanced infantry training battalion a little bit at unit leaders. And then really where I saw it was ISOLC. That's, that's where it all kind of started for me. Did you, so, you know, of course, um, MCDP-1 warfighting talks about uh, sort of the levels of effort, of effort when it comes to, to PME, uh, that there's the institutional, uh, there's, there's unit, uh, there, there are other lines of effort. Did you experience anything in the units you served in before getting to ISOL that, that maybe looking back on, you'd say, yeah, that was education, or was it, generally speaking, just training? I think... There was a few times where I think the lieutenants would try to pull us aside, um, especially after we transitioned from like our first deployment into the leadership billets of a vehicle commander or a section leader. I, I remember my first lieutenant talking about uh, on, on a whiteboard on ship, he put up OODA loop, right? And he starts to talk about it. And this is a very smart man. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, he got out, but um, very smart individual. Trevin Reed, good dude starts to talk about OODA loop, no idea what the dude's talking about, right? Like hadn't read war fighting at the time. I was, you know, 19, 20 years old, I think. And most of my buddies were the same age, maybe a few, a little bit older. I mean, we could, we could sit there and we could talk about observe, orient, decide, act in the cycle that it goes in. Like that's a very simple concept to understand, but the intricacies of the OODA loop and the, pro and the, and the decision process that he was probably trying to, to get, to get at, we just didn't understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because maybe we didn't understand the why. I think sometimes it's easy. It's better to start with that. Um, I mean, I was just reading an article on learning like behaviorism and cognitive development and constructivism and all that. And it talks about, you know, when, when it comes to learning, it's important for the learner to understand why this is important or what it's going to do for them. Sure. The Marine Corps simplifies it and says a whiff them what's in it for me. Right. right. It is probably important to do that. So I think there was a few times, um, I mean, even, uh, even, uh, my second Lieutenant, uh, on my second deployment tried to give us a, uh, a, a short PME on, uh, two seven Fox company in Korea mm -hmm. during, uh, it was right after a physical training event. Um, that, that probably was another example of him trying to introduce PME 
uh, to us and it just didn't, it just didn't take or didn't work out so well. Um, and maybe that's because it wasn't indoctrinated in the beginning. Maybe it was just because, Oh, here's just Lieutenant talking about shit that he probably don't know what he's saying anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me go get a 50 cal and start doing dis and ass, sir. Like that's what I really need to be doing. Sure. Uh, so probably some missed opportunities there on my part and the part of my buddies. But, uh, other than those two things, nothing really sticks out in my mind. Yeah. which is disheartening, right? The, my first five years in the Marine Corps, I can only think of two things that probably really counted as PME. Mm-hmm. So, so generally speaking, very, very training focused, whether yeah. it was the unit schools. So I'd like to, I'd like to dig deeper in um, your interest in, in PME. Where did, I think you'd mentioned it in ISOLC and, and happy to go down that, that road, but you just talk about where this, this interest began. Why? Um, I noticed a disparity between me and my peers when I joined AIT, when I started to go, when I was an instructor at advanced machine gun course, I was pretty smart. Um, I knew my job physically fit, but I noticed a mental disparity. These guys that I was working with were also sergeants a little bit older than I was, had participated in OIF and OEF deployments and things like that. Um, And I don't think it was just really because of their experience, but it was their dedication to their craft or them being professionals at arms. And I was like, man, these guys know a lot more than I do. They read a lot more. They study the details of our job and not just the surface level training tasks, but they dig down into the weeds asking the why questions. Why is this this way? Why is it that way? And that's what sparked it for me. Mm -hmm. That's when I really started reading a lot. Um, and started to look into history, started to look in things that were beyond my scope as a sergeant in the Marine Corps, but it, it helped, you know, nonetheless. And then one specific time, I remember I was, we were getting a brief from a master guns from recon on ISIS at AIT. Adam was sitting next to me. Adam Duval was sitting next to me. And, uh, he was asking the audience questions. This master guns was asking the audience questions about, who was ISIS because they were the new kid on the block at the time, right? This is in, you know, 20, 2014 or 2015, I think, right? They really started to come up. Who is ISIS? You know, where did they come from? What are their goals or what are, what, you know, what is it that they say they want to do? Where have certain battles taken place in the, in the modern environment? And the only person out of a room of sergeants and staff sergeants who had all been combat deployments time over 10 years in the Marine Corps, Adam Duval was the only one that could answer questions because he read every day, right? He dedicated himself to, to his profession to understand his enemy. I couldn't understand a thing. I couldn't answer a, th- a single thing. I understood what was being talked about, but I couldn't answer a single question to the audience. Mm-hmm. And I was professionally embarrassed, not only for myself, but for the group that only one staff and CEO can answer these questions uh, to the master guns that has taken his time out of his day to come talk to us for two hours. Um, And that was another moment where I was just like, man, there's, here's another aha. Like I need to dive even deeper into things. Like now I know my job. I understand fires. I understand maneuver in its physical form. You know, I understand machine guns and mortars and all the weapon systems, but I'm falling short of some of the things that matter as an infantry unit leader, like understanding your enemy. So then I started coming into work an hour and a half early just to get on the computer, drink my coffee and start reading articles. I started with uh, the small wars journal, Mm -hmm. I think a lot. 
then, you know, that leads to task and purpose and, and, and other things. And, um, and, and then I met you, right. Mm. And then you, when you came along, then there was another rabbit hole that I could go down with, with historical case studies. And then I would say probably around that, I guess we met in 2015. And then that's when I really started diving into military history now, you know, so I knew the weapons, I knew modern enemies and I knew modern tactics. And now I really started diving into history for, uh, for, to develop my mental proficiency. Well, I'd like to, uh, so first, um, you just to, to backtrack, Adam Duvall, gunnery sergeant, Adam Duvall was another ISOLC uh, instructor. Uh, I, I met Adam and, and Neil at the same time. Uh, and I think Adam is, is now at uh, um, McTogg, yeah. Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group in 29 Palms. Um, but I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to go down that, that ISOLC rabbit hole. So you, you taught at ISOLC uh, at SOI West. And what was that experience like? How, how did it influence the way you understood and, and, and practiced uh, maneuver warfare, understood training, understood edu- education? What influence did, did your time at this course have on you? It's, it was everything, right? It, it, it transitioned me <clears throat> from just being a good Marine and caring about my job to truly tr- attempting to embody a professional warfighter every single day. Mm. That's, that's what ISOLC did for me, right? So through your teachings and then building and facilitating decision-forcing cases myself, uh, talking to guys like Dan Mulvahill who were on Hill 488. Right, right. Learning from sergeants and their experiences and facilitating them teaching each other and watching them in the field uh, and watching some of those kids, even some of those kids were were true professionals of their craft. Um, Paul Middaw is one of them. We know, you know, now Staff Sergeant Paul Middaw, I think working on recruiting now, was I think, a I think he's a gunny now, actually. Yeah, gunny, maybe, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was another one as a sergeant, you know, younger than me, uh, and a true professional at his craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those guys kind of influenced me to make that those make that transition. Um, and then once we got a hold of historical case studies through you, and then we started diving into Boyd and Lind. Uh, and, and all these other folks that were kind of at the uh, General Al Gray, who were at the that pivotal point in the Marine Corps history of the intellectual renaissance and the maneuver renaissance, really um, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, being at ISIL gave me the opportunity to make that transition because it was all about developing mental proficiency. Did we have uh, physical events? Absolutely. Like you can't have a tough course without the human factors of, of physical events, you know, mostly in the field, right. You know, putting a guy in the field for six days at a time with, you know, hardly any food and water and things like that and moving them up the, the hills and mountains of Camp Pendleton. But um, it was really about an opportunity to develop mental proficiencies, to develop an understanding of maneuver as a mindset and not just in its physical form and how we can use that day in and day out and how we use that in training and how we apply maneuver to combat um, and, and really educating ourselves to take the next step into the leadership roles, because we were all going to go back as platoon sergeants, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that's what we were going to do. 
Uh, and we, and I think we need it. We all kind of as a group collectively as ISO constructors made that transition. You know, it's, it's, um, for me, working with you guys was, I mean, it was just a joy, um, and, and a big influence. It was a big influence on, on me and I think my development. I remember, uh, and maybe the listeners will find this funny, but I remember when I came and did, well, I don't know, it was like two or three day DFC workshop, something like that, or maybe it was the better part of a week, but yep. um, you did not, I don't think you were excited <laughs> to, to, to see me facilitate, you know, who is this bearded, long haired civilian? What, what is he going to teach me about uh, warfare? And of course, uh, you know, I wasn't there to do that. I was, I was yeah. there to just introduce you guys. Um, and I just remember, I just remember this, there was a turning point like with, with, I think the group where you guys, like you guys just got it. And there was this, Oh, there was like, Oh shit, this, this is something mm -hmm. we want. We like, let's use this. And the way, not only the like the degree to which you embraced the method, uh, but just your your profession, all the other components of of teaching and, and learning and wanting to get better was it, it was profoundly energizing for me, and um, I, I still consider that one of one of the highlights of, of my time with uh, Marine Corps University in the Case Method Project. That ISOLC uh, just kind of stood as this like. Um, mm kind of this shining light, you know, and, and, uh, it's, it's exciting that, you know, I think good things are still happening there. And, and I think, I think you guys have done a good job kind of, uh, self-selecting and, and keeping, I think the right sort of personality, uh, mm -hmm. the right sort of, um, the right sort of leaders there and instructors there to, um, continue to refine the course. So, um, I, I appreciate the, the kudos and just want to, to say back that you guys for, for anything I taught you guys, you taught me a hundredfold. So I, I appreciate you putting aside any reservations you had about me, and uh, and and now we're now we're good friends. But um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it was it was it was uh, it was an education for me, a hundred percent. Learning from you and Adam and the other folks. Um, you know, you've mentioned decision forcing cases, DFCs. Um, could you talk about why you find DFCs so effective? What is it about them that when you you put a Marine uh, through that exercise, it, you, you can tell or you think, uh, or you get the sense that learning is occurring. I mean, for one, I think most Marines enjoy learning about history mm -hmm. um, in military history, especially, you know, troops in contact or, you know, great battles or things like that. <clears throat> so I think that's part of the reason that that decision forcing cases are, are really good at, at facilitating, you know, judgment and decision making and critical thinking. Um, I also think it's just a great format and it's one of the only formats that we have to just let free thinking occur and decision making occur and utilize the the resources that you have as per the case study or as per the historical case study without control measures, right? Mm -hmm. I, um, and Lynn talks about it in the Maneuver Warfare Handbook is like doing TDGs without control measures. Don't worry about fire support coordination measures and don't worry about boundaries and phase lines and this, that, and the other thing. Let people just move their, move their resources, move their weapons, move their people as they see fit 
obviously we we put it into a historical sense and they have to do things sometimes they got to do it with vietnam weapons sometimes they got to do it with civil war weapons or sometimes they can do it with all of the technology that we have today um, but i think it, it it gives them and gives students and and learners an opportunity to to do that without control measures and then it it forces critique right so now people have to defend their points or they have to decide they're going to concur with somebody else's points because maybe what they said they didn't like too much or maybe they spoke too soon or whatever it was sure. um and then the fact that they're the the facilitator is remaining non-judgmental throughout the entire process there's never or at least there shouldn't be like oh i like that koa better than this koa you know the intricacies of being a, a, a dfc facilitator um you know is uh i think that's refreshing for students you know what i mean because you're judged based on your answers in a regular schoolhouse 100 percent, you're judged mm -hmm. i used to do it to kids i mean i've made those mistakes as a young sergeant you know you'd, you'd make a kid feel dumb or stupid because of what he said or he didn't understand the material and that's not okay it's you know in a learning environment and i think when you understand how to truly give a dfc or a k or you know retrospective case study or whatever it is um that that's helpful to facilitate like okay now the guy feels comfortable making more decisions and speaking more so the learning process is gonna you know is gonna increase or be a little bit better sure neil did you you know as you were describing uh kind of your thoughts on on dfcs and, and i thought it was wonderful you mentioned this whole you know kind of operate just let people operate rather than put them in boxes and have them force to use lines um that seemed to me that seems to me to to require a good deal of trust in your learners trust in your students did you have any sort of perspective shift as a facilitator as a teacher um while at isolk while giving these these dfcs because unless i'm mistaken you hadn't really seen these before um mm -hmm. you know in, in other schoolhouses whether you, whether you were instructing or or as a learner so I'm just curious if you could just talk about the role of trust in in a DFC between facilitator and student. I think facilitating them and creating them helped me a lot with with building trust in subordinates because you have this notion sometimes as a Marine and as an infantry Marine, alpha male type, whatever you want to call it, right? That you just that uh especially if you're in a senior role that people just don't know as much as you do right mm -hmm. um, i'm not going to let somebody make a decision because ultimately it rests on me so i'm just going to control that right i'm just going to maintain and centralize that that authority sure. um when you facilitate dfcs and you open up lines of communication and you open up like you know you kind of open up yourself to the to the learners or to your marines and whoever it is that you're doing it with you you start to understand that okay not everybody is as stupid as you might think man like other people have good ideas too and then you hear some things that are just amazing come out of young kids like i've done them with the most senior sergeants and i've done them with lance corporals who were saying things that were just as intellectual as a, a, a sergeant or a staff sergeant if not more so in some cases um, there's very smart kids out there and once you start to hear that stuff it's like man a lot of these these men and women have really good ideas. Mm -hmm. So maybe me as the leader during training, I can kind of let that free thinking continue, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it more controlled in a live fire environment? Absolutely, right? It just, it, it, you know, it has to be. 
but there are certain measures that you can put in place to allow decision making to move forward. Um, but I thought what it facilitated was just letting us have the students just execute as necessary, especially with blanks and pyrotechnics and things like that. We what, what we learned too is that live fire is not nearly as important as some people think. Um, and then you know, not only did we have free thinking at ISOC during the, de the, the decision forcing cases and the, and the sand table exercises, but we were also able to transfer that into a field environment with blanks and things like that, where SDZs didn't matter, where control measures, again, didn't matter. Uh, and the students were, were able to try to transfer their classroom knowledge into, you know, practical application in the field. So yeah, I would definitely say, um, that it allowed me to trust trust Marines a little bit more, and I saw, and that was evident when I went back to the fleet too. When I became a platoon sergeant, maybe not my first go around as much, but my second go around for sure, um, I was able to do a lot more of that stuff. Yeah. Another interesting thing, Neil, is you know some some of what you're saying, I think to to some Marines, um, more senior Marines, is could be heresy. You know, the the idea of control measures don't matter as much, and just let them think. Did you at any point at your time at ISOLC um, encounter Marines, whether active duty or not, who just, um, what you were doing at ISOLC seemed to run counter to everything that they, that they had experienced? Or was this something that you saw yeah. other people really embrace? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one in particular, we were doing um, a live fire movement to contact and by live fire, I mean, we had machine guns with blanks and, and all that stuff. So it wasn't necessarily bullets that can kill people, but you know, live munitions, uh, we had CS gas and, you know, privates going up against the students and all that stuff. And, um, our Paul Middaw at the time, Sergeant Paul Middaw had brought a piece of equipment called ICOM that's used in an operational environment to listen in on our comms uh, via 153, via the black gear, you know, the unsecured nets that we were running the privates with. And so he outcycled us that way because um, we were wondering, like, how is it that this squad of Marines is moving so fast against everything that we're throwing at them? Oh, well, he tapped into our communications network, right? Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, come on, we got we to give it up. Yeah. And me and Josh Larson were just, fellow instructor, were just like, dude, this is awesome. Like, this is it. If that's not maneuvered, tell, I don't know what is, and I'm just going to drop my chevrons and quit. Like that was great. <laughs> yeah. You know? Anyway, so our OIC, we told our OIC because we we're like, this guy's, he's going to be ecstatic about it, you know? And of course the OIC blows up, calls him a cheater, um, says he did it maliciously and all this other, and we're like, dude, you're missing the spirit of everything. Um, it, it's like, I, I think uh, Mike Wiley told a story about it you know, where the IOC students stole vehicles to go get food while they were going through training or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of how we thought of it. Like, you know, he was smart enough to bring a piece of equipment that he had from his unit out to the field and use it to his advantage against the enemy. You know what I mean? Like that's what he was doing. Sure. Um, not, not out of cheating or anything. He was trying to get an advantage, right? He was, he was thinking outside the box and that occurred many times in that course um, especially with those, that particular, those particular 15 Marines, but the OIC was the one who was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like that's goes against everything we do. He's a cheater. It's like, no dude, like that's, that's what we're trying to get out of these guys. Yeah. So to answer, yeah, people were against it for sure. 
it's interesting again because it sounds you know I, I don't know you tell me if tell me if i'm wrong would you have had would you have shared the oac's perspective even five years prior right or would or again did you I'm, I'm i'm hearing that there was this perspective shift that you had as a result of yeah. being an isolk interacting with guys like adam duvall josh larson uh reading bill lynn and, and wiley where um you really started to internalize this idea of gaining an advantage and uh, but but I'd be curious. Would would you have had a different thought, you know, prior to going to ISOC as an instructor? Probably. I think. I mean, we used to call people like that. We we would call people out for not following the rules, or you know, I mean, like you didn't follow the instructions. Like you, you know, you're a piece of shit or whatever. Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I probably would have <clears throat> that you could you know that you couldn't win in the confines of the box. You know what I mean? Which right. goes against everything that we're talking about, right? So. I, I think it's probably safe to assume that I would have shared his perspective. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So, and you know, I'd like to get back to, to DFCs. What is your favorite DFC and why? Cause I know you've built a few, you've taught yeah. many. Uh, I, I, the, yeah, the people have asked me this question before. Um, I think it's decisions, decisions. Okay. Adolf von Schell DFC mm -hmm. from 1918. Am I, is that the one? Is that um, is that the correct? Uh, yeah, time? I think it's 1915, and and uh, von Schell is a company commander. Yeah, on the yeah. Eastern Front. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite one. I think, and you 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 gave that to us the first time I heard it was with you. Uh, I think it was me and a couple of fellow instructors sitting around the table listening to that uh, in the ISOC building. Mm -hmm. um, but I like that one because. Um, it gives you an opportunity to try to look forward and out cycle what's about to happen. Hmm. So there's so many other, you know, white castle DFCs or, um, something like something like phase line green where it's just like, yeah, you can try to see forward, but your platoon sergeant just got his face shot off right. and we have to deal with this thing now. You know what I mean? Right, right. Or any other number of, of, uh, or Hill 488, for example, to getting attacked by a battalion. Like, okay, it's nice to try to look into the future, but we have a huge problem right now that we have to dedicate so much focus to in order to survive. Sure. And decisions kind of slowly brings it out, right? You hear pop shots at the bridge, you know, just to the south of you, I think it is, or, or I forget yep. the card. That's right, that's right. Start to hear pop shots and then, oh, what's going on over there? And you send a recon element and nobody comes back and it's, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, something's going to happen there. That's a maneuver, right? That's, that's a. So Neil, welcome back. I know we're having some technical difficulties, but you were discussing uh, kind of your thoughts on decisions. decisions. So I was looking, going, going through that case study in my head and just kind of remembering, I was able to look forward and try to predict what was, what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember a lot of people were trying to say to, you know, conduct, conduct fire and movement, conduct fire and movement and people, you know, you have to take into account the weapon systems during that case. Um, and what's kind of the best co and how you're going to go about it. And I remember there's like option a and option B kind of, uh, and I remember Adam Duvall once told me like, no, fuck the enemy, take option C, make your own. It sounds like Adam. Yeah. And so that was one where I really was like, you know what, I'm going to try to go against the grain here and, and take a different option. I think that's what I ended up doing. Um, but that was a small aha moment for me, right? Like, oh, that's, that's what Adam's talking about, right? Is to look 
deeper into the situation. And yeah, it's a little bit harder in real life. Like I've, I mean, you know, having, having experienced some of it on deployment, um, but it, uh, it, it works. It's a thing, right? Like understanding the situation so well or preparing yourself so well before an operation uh, and understanding the enemy and how, and try to, you know, get in, into people's heads and how they think allows you to make those decisions a little bit faster and then adjust to the situation. So. Sure, sure. Neil, could you talk about the process you've used or the process that, um, yeah, you, you've, you've gone through in researching and developing DFCs? You've mentioned Hill 488, which I believe is a, a Vietnam era case featuring Marines um, a recon team, I believe, that I, I think that, that you developed. So if you welcome to talk about that or uh, the overall process you've, you've gone through in developing cases. Um, yeah, I mean, I can talk about uh, Grozny. I started from the ground uh, and what I, what I sometimes do is I'll just type into Google. Um, I don't use Wikipedia, but what I will use Wikipedia for is a jumping off point. Like, and I'll just go, I'll meet, you know, type in first battle of Grozny hit Wikipedia and scroll all the way down to the references. And then I start going through those references and generally speaking, references will take you deeper and deeper to more references and more things. And, and that's kind of how, okay, now we're getting somewhere with a reliable source. Uh, and it's not just, you know, Dwight Schroeder, Michael, Michael Scott, uh, posting on the Wikipedia about the first battle of Grozny. Sure. sure. Um, and, uh, and then I found this great thesis paper on it, uh, from the army, uh, and, uh, and, and so I started with this paper and I read that and I think, you know, 60, 70 pages or something like that on lessons learned from Grozny. And then that one took me into more resources where I started to read about, um, I found out about, um, another book, uh, that I, I think it, I forget fangs of the lone wolf or something. Yeah, I, I by, can't remember. Uh, Lester Grau. Lester Grau. Yeah. 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 So through that thesis paper, I found Lester Grau's name and then I found that book. And then he just so happened to send me a copy because I just emailed him and asked for one. And then I learned about Grozny even more from that book, mm-hmm. um, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, no set recipe for how to research a DFC, but that's kind of how my, my process, I just start diving into references and looking obviously for, for, for credible sources. Um, and I'm, and I'm not, you know, I would tell, uh, tell listeners if they're developing a DFC is don't ever feel shy about communicating with people, send emails, make phone calls. Um, chances are they're probably pretty nice people and they're going to want to talk about their experiences or help you out. I've never had somebody, you know, hang up the phone on me or give me the cold shoulder. Um, which is actually very nice. You know what I mean? Some people don't want to talk about things, but mostly if you're respectful and tactful about it, like they'll absolutely help you out. And, and that's, that was kind of a new thing for me because, you know, in some cases I'm very much introverted and outside of my close circle of friends, you included, like, I don't necessarily like to initiate, you know, conversations with new people. Um, that's just how, you know, kind of how I've always been. And I think doing DFCs kind of helped me with that too. And I met a lot of more, a lot more people through it. Um, and so I would say that's, that's one of the biggest things is don't be afraid to, when you find credible sources is to go seek out deeper information, especially the protagonist of the story as well. Sometimes depending on the time of the case study, those people, you know, very likely are, are alive and well and, 
are willing to talk about that stuff. I think that's, I think that's all um, really great advice. And, and I think it, it holds especially true if the protagonist is a Marine and you happen to be a Marine. Um, and if it's someone say from the Hill 488 case, um, it's a Vietnam era, uh, you know, example. Uh, and, and I think a lot of these veterans love talking with the younger leaders, guys like you, and hearing, hey, uh, we want to build a decision-making exercise out of that really terrible event that you lived through and help sharpen the decision-making skills, critical thinking abilities, and so forth through your experiences. And I, I think they, they really, by and large, take to that opportunity. So yeah. um, I, I absolutely second your, your advice and encourage people to, to reach out. Uh, and I think it's also great that you, you got in touch with Lester Grau. Uh, for, for those listeners who don't know, uh, Lester Grau, Dr. Grau, uh, I want to say he's a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and uh, one of, if not you know, the top guy uh, in the States when it comes to the Soviet Army. Um, the modern day Russian army, uh, small unit tactics, organization, weaponry. He is a uh, bona fide expert and he's, he's done a tremendous amount of work. And um, uh, again, if I'm not mistaken, I think he did, uh, was it Bear went over the mountain, um, the other side of the mountain, both excellent collections of vignettes uh, of, uh, of small unit actions, uh, yeah. Soviet, Soviet actions. And I think, um, Soviet actions in Afghanistan, and then the other side of the mountain, I think, is uh, the Mujahideen uh, against the Soviets. And then, of course, Fangs of the Lone Wolf is about the Chechens fighting the, the Russians. Um, so all, all great resources and, um, yeah, yeah, reach out to people. Um, let's move on, Neil, to I, I want to ask you kind of some, some speculative questions. So we'll, we'll stay focused on, on learning. But if you were commandant for the day uh, and you could change any one thing about enlisted professional military education, what would it be? Make it longer and more difficult, honestly. I, I really would. Um, I think to a certain extent, at least at the NCO and staff NCO level, it's got to be it's got to be longer and it's got to be more difficult. Um, I don't necessarily agree with this whole push to making everything have college credit. It's nice. Um, it, it is, it's a nice thing to have, you know, it definitely helps out if you're, if you're trying to pursue a degree outside of the military. And I know that's a big push with the SAR major in the Marine Corps right now. Um, but I would just say that it needs to, um, you know, even if it doesn't count for college credit, it has to reach a deeper level of the profession at arms and the professional warfighter, and it has to implement all facets of doctrine, not just the first two chapters of warfighting, MCDP-1 and MCDP-1 TAC-3. It's got to talk about everything else. Um, and so I would say, if, you know, if it was one thing, it would be for, you know, NCOs and staff NCOs to have longer and more difficult. And by more difficult, I would mean, I mean, it should encompass more of the doctrinal publications in discussion format. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've talked about this, I think multiple times, you of course are, are an infantry Marine. That's the community, the community you belong to. And 
uh, you've you've taught amongst. Um, but most of the Marine Corps is not the infantry. There are all these other um, supporting organizations and establishments. Um, how do you, or could you propose ways of getting all Marines, whether it's you know the guy playing the tuba in the president's own to the water purification specialist, um, you know, in third Marine division, how, how would you try to get all of them interested in their profession, which is the profession of arms, right? I know a lot of people sign up to do a particular job uh, and, and most Marines, if I'm not mistaken, do their, their first, their initial contract and they get out. Yeah. But um, how, how would you, how do you propose to get people interested in, bought off on and wanting to learn more of their profession? I think, I think that's where my, my suggestion comes into play. I, I honestly do. Um, when somebody finally put MCDP one and one tack three and one tack zero in my face, that's that was another jumping off point for me to dive into to the profet, to to being a professional warfighter. Most people don't know that there's nine doctrinal publications out there. Most MOSs don't know that they have a doctrinal publication assigned to them, right? Like like the infantry does. They're not all infantry publications. You've seen them. Like there's there's logistics, there's planning, there's intelligence, there's all of these things, right? So the water purification specialist that you talk about is in the is in the logistics pub like that's where you lie is mm. is logistics right um um probably the intel community knows that they would have one or you know things like that but every at every level and every mos and even sub mos can relate their job to one of those publications and all publications tie back into mcdp1 warfighting and maneuver warfare and how we think and how we fight wars as a Marine Corps, or at least how we want to fight wars as a Marine Corps, right? Maybe we're not there yet, but, um, and so that's how, that's how I think you can get them interested. It's, um, at least at the NCO and the staff NCO level, <clears throat> when it comes to, uh, to the younger Marines, and we've talked about this before, I know in the infantry community, I relate it specifically to combat marksmanship, right? Is getting them excited about the hard skills and then using that as a gateway drug, so to speak, into the art of warfare, right? So getting facilitating the science in a fun and new and interesting way and, and, and getting them to, to talk about that when, you know, when I start to talk about maneuver warfare, it's like, okay, we've done combat marksmanship and we've talked about intuitive gunfighting. This is how it relates to our doctrine of maneuver warfare, right? And if you did that with every single MOS, there's, you know, not every MOS has super cool, you know, tasks, you know, like, well, I classify combat marksmanship as being super cool, right? But like, there's things that every single MOS has to do that can be done in an interesting way. Every Marine has to shoot a rifle. That's a thing, right? Like, that can be made to be a fun thing. There's certain, there's, there's certain um, similarities that we have inside of the Marine Corps. I don't like to say every Marine is a rifleman, but every Marine does have to shoot a rifle. So that's one of the ways to do it. But I think uh, without being able to necessarily intelligently speak on it, if every, if staff and CEOs and officers inside of separate communities were to identify creative and interesting ways to master the sciences of their craft, 
they can use that as a jumping off point. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I remember you and I going back and forth on this subject. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you had left ISOLC, returned to the fleet, you were out in Twin and Palms, and you were making the argument to me that, you know, before we give them DFCs or, or these other sorts of decision-making exercises, let's focus more on the science. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get it at, at the time. I, I didn't, I think, quite understand the approach. But as you talked about it and, and we discussed it further, I saw what you were doing and how, like you said, this was a starting off point. Let's, let's use the thing they're already interested in, right? These are infantry Marines. They like to shoot. They like to shoot things. It's part of what they do. Let's, let's use that to get them interested in a, a larger conversation or a larger topic of, of war fighting. Like you said, the gateway drug. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I've, I've talked with uh, Brendan McBreen about this you know, because he, he's, he's a former infantry officer, right? So his yep. focus is on the infantry. But I think if you can find ways to employ, devise creative uh, facilitation techniques or, or just means of, of getting people, like you said, in the, interested in the science of what they do. Um, and it could be a game. It could be, I mean, hell, there was a, I was looking at it the other day there was a student at the Army's Command and General Staff College who I think had developed a, a game on, um, I forget the exact organization they call it, but it's essentially, a, it's a mobile, it's an ar like a, a, an Army field hospital. Okay. And there were different aspects to this game where you are having to make decisions and put patients in certain places, and I think you've got to provide for your own security, and you maybe draw a card, and there's some sort of event that you have to deal with that could be applied across the board. Some, something like that where you're doing procedures, you're talking techniques, you're talking conventions, but it's in the form of a game. Um, now, there's, there's the hard skill as, aspect where you focused on and, and the, the combat marksmanship, but I guess the, the bottom line is find creative, interesting, fun ways to get people interested in the science of what they do for a living and then use that as a springboard for larger discussions and deep dives into the profession of arms. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I was trying to think uh, of an example too, <clears throat> just a personal example. I, I remember being at Bridgeport in 2016 in October, bad weather, really cold, raining, hailing, little bit of snow, walking up a 10,000 foot mountain, right? We're already at like 7,000 feet and we got to go up like another 4,000 feet or whatever it was. It was called Mean Peak. Um, it was a middle of the night movement. We decided not to rest. We decided to drop, like, drop gear and move as fast as we could, attack from the north uh, in a, you know, in a, inside of a scenario up in Bridgeport. Very much, in my opinion, right? Something that embodies maneuver, right? We found a gap. We're going to exploit this. We're creating an opportunity for ourselves where we're going to move through the night and try to achieve some surprise on the, you know, during the force on force exercise. Trying to explain that to 18 year olds and 19 year olds, it just doesn't get through, right? Yeah. They just are worried about how cold they are, how tired they are. You know what I mean? And, and that's just how it goes. So that was like me trying to get theory in front of them 
by using something that we were currently doing, but it wasn't something cool, right? It wasn't necessarily something they liked to do. But when it came, when it comes to like, okay, instead, like, let's talk about, you know, throwing, throwing this grenade or canoeing somebody's forehead with a five, five, six round, something that, you know, everybody thinks is cool, or at least in the infantry we do. Right. Um, and once you get them excited about their job and the hard tasks that they have to do, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Once you get them to understand why it's important and why it applies to real life, and that's what the hard skills do. The hard skills apply to saving people's lives because that's what we deal with. We don't deal in monetary solutions. We deal with human lives, right? So mm-hmm. once they understand that, then we can move into the, into the theory. And, you know, it takes a little bit of development too. Um, as they get a little bit older, they get a little bit more mature, uh, and they spend a little bit of time, then, then we can start talking about the other stuff. Sure. I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's really fascinating, Neil. Um, I'd like, to, I'd like to go back to this speculative question, questioning. So we talked about what you would change about PME. What would you, you know, same sort of scenario, you've got one thing that you can change as far as training goes. What would that be? I think I would say focus on the squad level. The majority of pre-deployment training should be on the squad. And I would mandate that somehow as the commandant, mm-hmm. uh, if that was me. Um, because this whole PTP thing, which is disgusting, I hate it. It's like, hey, some civilian wrote a PTP plan or PTP years ago for a workup to OIF or OEF or whatever it was. And it's already in Excel format and it's already got a detailed training schedule. Hey, commander, is this something that would interest you? Like, and then they just take it because it's already a built product, right? It's already kind of laid out for them. It's garbage. I hate it. I would cancel all PTP formats and I would fire all of those people. And I would say, focus on the squad. I don't care if your workup is six months or 18 months. You need to focus on the squad because building proficiency in the small teams is what's going to make good platoons. Mm. That makes a platoon commander and a platoon sergeant's job so much easier when he has proficient squads and he can just utilize them as he sees fit because they're good at the hard skills and then they understand his intent, right? If we focus at the squad level and stop moving to platoon and company and battalion events so quickly, because we have to get through mission essential task lists, that's what that would be more effective. So if there was one thing I could change about training, it would be mandating that we stay at the squad level for, you know, a majority of the training cycle. Sure. And this, since, you know, we're on the topic of, of the infantry community, um, you know, if you could, if you could modify, alter, change any aspect of the O3 community, what would that be? Mm. <laughs> this is this is where yeah this is yeah. I, I love I love I mean because you and I you know just to peel the curtain back for the audience you know when I was at ISOLC or at SOI West or, or out in that area I'd come by the office and we would just we would rap about these things and I always found your responses very insightful and interesting so I'm I'm, I'm asking <laughs> I'm asking those questions here yeah so it what, so we're talking about changing something inside of the O3 community? Yeah, writ large, right? The, the, the infantry portion of the GCE. 
So I was recently a part of a advanced infantry training battalion working group mm-hmm. where we looked at modernization of uh, the advanced training pipelines that we have. We call them advanced. They're not really advanced, but we like to put fancy terms in front of things. Um, but just to follow on schools of a regular infantryman, there's we're at a point right now where they're going to do like testing cycles of um, longer longer advanced training advanced schools they're going to make them longer they're going to combine things they're going to put more uh military theory and military history inside of it they're going to put more dfcs inside of it um and they're going to introduce maneuver warfare at earlier levels um i forget the good captain's name but he's the oic at aitb right now you know him his name escapes me but um I'll, i'll probably remember it somewhere along the line this isn't uh, Bryson Johnson, is it? No. Johnson. Okay. No. He's, uh, he, he, you guys know each other. You guys both know Alana Nicastro too. And he's at the forefront of this thing as the AITB company or IULTC company commander. I think he's serving as right now. Um, they're running pilot courses for making them longer. And there, there's talk about changing the infantry training battalion pipeline to the ITB, making it six months long. I think everybody's heard of this, right? So yep. I was kind of a part of that. Uh, um, and I was happy to be a part of that. But if I could change anything about the O3 community right now, it'd be, it'd be just that thing. It'd be getting Marines better at entry-level training uh, prior to them even getting to the fleet because I think we have the resources and I think we can do it mm-hmm. um, inside of the current manpower construct that we have today. It would start at the yellow footprints and it would go all the way through ITB. Like the yellow f- case studies would be implemented into uh, – into recruit training all of these we would start indoctrinating these kids very early and then itb would be six months long to really give these young marines a solid baseline in the science of war so that when they get to the fleet they are truly ready to fight tonight or or you know or get on a ship and deploy somewhere but they have a more solid baseline and a solid understanding of the sciences of warfare so I would change our training pipeline, our initial training pipeline to include the advanced courses immediately. And I wouldn't, you know, and I wouldn't look back. I'd burn it all to the ground and I wouldn't look back. Sounds like the Neil I know. Yeah. 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 And, um, and I haven't been part of those conversations, but I've certainly heard kind of whispers of them. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly keeping my eye out for where the SOIs are going to go. I think we've, I mean, yeah. You can you can look at the you know force design twenty was it twenty thirty yep. uh, I think the Marine Corps as a whole is heading in a very interesting direction and we've we've got a lot of major developments. Speaking of one development, uh, a recent one, uh, Training and Education Command uh, put out. Um, I don't know if it was Training and Education. I guess it was TECOM. <clears throat> yeah, I think it would be them. They published a new Marine Corps doctrinal publication mm-hmm. uh, on learning. Um, have you read it, Neil? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I did. Uh, <clears throat> I probably should read it again. This was, oh gosh, almost a year ago, I think, when it was still in draft. General Mullen sent it to me, asked me my thoughts on it. I gave him some feedback. Uh, didn't see that feedback, obviously, in the in the in the printed publication. But um, I think it's great that the Marine Corps is trying to institutionalize a theory of learning or how they think about learning. 
um, that's such a such an interesting topic, uh, and I mean something that I'm currently reading about now. Uh, Adam Duvall, as you know, is is really into that right now because of his position, um, and as an operations chief of a course that's you know basically certifying student marine gunners. You know, there's only a hundred marine gunners, and I'm you know part of the group that gets to certify the new ones. Uh, inside of a course and how we can make our course better, you know, for learning. Sure. Um, so I thought it was an interesting, uh, an interesting book. Some parts, you know, uh, it, it's, I think it's kind of clear that it was a collective effort. Um, I think maybe it was pushed too fast a little bit. Uh, I don't know the reasoning behind that. I also think it doesn't necessarily maybe need to be a doctrinal publication um, because it's, it's there's so many different theories on, on these things and i and i think it can just be you know a reference publication or uh or something like that or a series of articles maybe that people have written um and, and those could probably be published vice a doctrinal publication mm-hmm. uh, i think I'll, I'll read it again here pretty soon but those were my uh, initial thoughts on it i remember thinking too as i was going through it man this is a lot of detail for a doctrinal publication like this is getting into some of the weeds of the things and i don't think this belongs it's not in the spirit of doctrine right um, where it's authoritative and not prescriptive right. um and so i think those were kind of my initial thoughts i'm glad that the marine corps is addressing it though that was nice yeah yeah i think i think i share the same view um i'm i'm happy the marine corps is taking such a, a strong and positive stance on learning i think this is good i mean if if you would try to have this conversation 10 or 15 years ago, I think most Marines, to include a lot of senior officers, would kind of wince and go, what are you talking about? But I think with General Mullen uh, at Training and Education Command, with General Berger as the Commandant, um, there's definitely been a sea change in um, the senior leadership's views on the value and role of, of learning in, in this military organization. Um, I've got some some gripes with MCDP seven, and I've written an article with a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Sean McCann. Uh, we're looking to get that published here soon with proceedings, so we'll hopefully share that soon. But overall, I think, hey, this is a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people forget that before FMFM one, the predecessor to to MCDP one, Warfighting came out. Uh, there was, I think, OH dash. I think it was six or six one. I want to say it was OH dash six, and I think it was like a, it was a handbook on um, operational handbook on I think ground combat operations. And John Schmidt, the author of of uh, future author of of war fighting, uh, was involved in that, um, and he shoehorned at the last minute. You know, the 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 word was, hey, Al Gray is going to become the commandant. He's really into maneuver warfare so schmidt make sure maneuver warfare gets into this this document um and it stuck out like a sore thumb and schmidt knew this and mike wiley of of marine or maneuver warfare fame wrote a critique of it saying hey there's some good stuff here the best stuff is actually the maneuver warfare bit but it totally just sticks out um and i kind of see mcdp7 in its current form as something to be built on and a starting point 
to 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 move us forward. Um, I think uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Some of the stuff I I, I do disagree with, um, but if if people aren't arguing and debating and having thoughtful conversations about this and aren't allowed to do that, mm-hmm. we're we're doing it wrong, you know. Yep. And and I think in the spirit of everything that the publication um, calls for uh, and expects, and what General Mullen and General Berger expect, we we have to debate these things. Yep. Uh, MCDB one, I mean, for years, years and years, has been debated. The last time it was revised, of course, was 1997, mm-hmm. and um, Many of our listeners may know this, may, many may not, but uh, it was actually revised. And I believe John Schmidt led that revision, um, and it was on General Neller's uh, desk, I believe. And, and for reasons unknown to me, the you know the, the revision was not um, was not signed and, and published. So maybe we'll see it, maybe we won't. But uh, these things um, should be debated and, and argued and, and discussed. So. I'm hoping we see something similar with with MCDP seven, mm-hmm. but enough enough of my thoughts. Um, so Neil, I want to talk for a bit about your journey to writing. You have published two articles. You've got a third on the way. Uh, I, I expect you've got more things to say uh, and are going to continue to write. I certainly hope you do. But um, I'd like to hear about what led you to. To writing, what led you to writing about enlisted education, and what reception have you received to to your article so far? Well, you did, Damien. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was not a setup, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, um, I think where obviously you are absolutely part of the answer, and I always tell people that. So, props to you, Damien, for, for doing that. I really do. Um, but so Adam Duval and I, fellow instructor at ISOL, we were sitting in the office uh, and uh, he starts typing out, you know, I hear him typing away on the computer, you know, banging his big old bear, bear claw hands on the computer. Adam, what are you doing, man? Well, you know, I'm, I'm writing, just writing down some thoughts, you know, I'm like, all right, well, send it to me when you're finished, you know. So he writes half a page or a page or whatever and he sends it over to me and I start looking at this thing and I'm like, man, this is this is good stuff. Like, this is really good. You know, these are, these are things that we've talked about for, for the last three or four months now. And and you've put it on paper. Well, let's write an article, man. Let's do it. You know, I'll let's, let's confer together and, and we'll get after it. And, uh, that's where it started. Right. And then I started to, uh, read a couple of more things. And I heard some people talk about, you know, it's great that we have these discussions and it's awesome that people have all these thoughts, but if we're not, I think if we're not publishing them or we're not putting it out there for and leaving ourselves open to critique and open for discussion and facilitating conversation, then we're not really doing a whole lot for the community. You and I can sit here and talk about things all day, but if we don't put these thoughts anywhere, it it really doesn't go anywhere except for, you know, the benefit of my brain and your brain really. So in order in, in, in spirit of getting it out to the community, um, that so that's what kind of started this is like okay it's great that I can talk about this but I gotta put this on paper and, and expose myself a little bit and see you know basically see like okay what is what is my brain made up of and where am I gonna come out you know um, and Adam helped me a little bit he kind of fell off with that one uh, he just helped me write this last one though he's very influential in this last one that we all co-authored um, 
But that one took me years to go because it was, again, there was some hesitancy of like putting my thoughts out there and being exposed to everybody. I know you helped me with that. A couple of my, my opso helped me with that one. Um, but I was so glad that I did it. Uh, it seemed like it was very well received. A lot of people read it. Um, even people that I hadn't expected to read it uh, were, were very interested in it. Um, and I think it was a good time to come out to, even though it took gosh, a year and a half to get published in the Gazette, of course. Um, but it was kind of a good time to come out because PME is also shifting, or at least the, you know, the sergeant's course and career course and advanced courses are shifting now. And I think it was an appropriate time uh, to come out um, into the weeds. Uh, and then the combat marksmanship one, that one has been received well by oh, our ideas about combat marksmanship and and some of the things that we've done with that have, has, has been well received by everybody that usually reads it. Um, you know, there, there's, there's new programs coming out in the Marine Corps that kind of embody the spirit of what we're talking about there. Uh, and even some of the techniques and things like that. Um, so yeah, I would say that it was really the time of ISOC that kind of put me into, in, into writing and getting my thoughts out there. So you had an influence on that. Adam Duval had an influence on that, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of my officer buddies had an influence on that, um, and then it, and it's rolled out. You know, it, it becomes a little bit easier. You know, to not necessarily to put thoughts on paper or to you know to format it correctly and all that stuff. Like that's always a difficult part, but it's definitely easier opening myself up to to criticism. And I, you know, as you know, we welcome it. Right, that's mm -hmm. that's what we thrive on, and we have to be, you know, part of debates. And I love when people challenge our ideas because you know. It just makes for a good conversation. I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, that was my next question is, uh, how has the process changed for you since publishing your first article? And you mentioned that, you know, there's still things that are difficult, but it's, it sounds as if you're more willing to put yourself out there. Because, you know, for, for those who haven't published, um, what, at least for me, when you put something out there and you put something that, you've spent time on, it feels like it, and I don't have children, but I've heard this metaphor, you know, your, your writing is, is a child. It's, it's something of you, of you, right? You've, you've produced it. Um, and then it's very easy for someone to critique it and, uh, and for you to take it personally. Right. And, and, um, I think that's, that's always a challenge. Um, but the alternative is that people just don't have the conversation and the status quo, yeah, uh, continues on, and and often that's not good for the the health of the organization. So, I think um, being open to taking that hit uh, and putting yourself up for criticism um, is 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 necessary. It's it's a you know it's a little scary you know especially when you hear from somebody who clearly has more experience from you or they uncover a part of your exposition or argument that um you know you overlooked or is, yep. you know, oh crap I, I didn't think of that or ah i didn't have that data if i had the data that you had i would have presented my argument differently but mm -hmm. i'd like to know neil what advice could you give to other marines especially enlisted marines who are interested in writing um you know what if if, if you could pass on some some thoughts to to people who like in your case um have ideas and have ideas worth sharing and who have something valuable to say, but maybe are a little reluctant to, to share those things, what would you tell them? 
I would say, uh, <clears throat> first I would say persevere. You know, that first project took me the better part of two years to, to submit for publication. This last one that I did took three months, you know, we developed a product for three months and then immediately sent it for publication. Uh, so it definitely, in that respect, it gets a little bit easier. Um, but I would just say persevere. Uh, so find, find a topic that you're passionate about. You, you try to, you know, you want to write stuff that you're passionate about, I think. Um, and you're going to hit roadblocks. There's going to be times where you just don't want to do that thing anymore. You're done writing about it or maybe you're done, you know, you're done talking about it or whatever. Uh, continue to, to write about it. Uh, continue to defend yourself. Look for counterpoints um, in, in the paper and then edit, 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 and edit again, you know, have, have, a, have a system to, to editing and, and submit it to, you know, not just your friends, because generally, you know, your friends are going to be like, yeah, this is great. You know, I don't have much for you, but like, and then you'll have some friends that'll do that. And then you'll have some friends that'll, that'll tear it to pieces. You know what I mean? Um, you're one of them, right? <laughs> so, you know, not that you tear it to pieces, but you will give very constructive feedback. And it's like, man, how did I miss that? Like, I can't believe that, that I missed some of these things. And, um, and it, it'll help. I think once you give it to people who probably have a little bit more experience in that realm of writing and editing, um, and then they give those back to you and then you restructure the paper. Um, not that you're changing the message and not that you're changing the voice, but that you're just restructuring it to say things just a little bit better, um, for ease of, for ease of reading. Um, that, that's very, that's very important to do is, is, is get people to edit those things and, and don't be afraid to take critique. Once you submit yourself to critique, you will find that there's more people that have similar views that you do, you'll find that you'll be connected to more people. Um, you'll, you'll obviously find people who, who will argue against you as we saw in one of your most recent articles, right? Mm -hmm. Um, people arguing and that's fine. That just gives that's, you know, what we can do is either entrench ourselves into m more of our viewpoint or try to look for other things that defend it as, as you recently did in your online articles. Um, or you could probably, Hey, maybe that other person has some really good things to say and they have some really good ideas and maybe we adopt some of what they're thinking. But if you didn't submit that, you would never know that information. Mm. You would never see that point of view and you know, you'll be the worst for it. Right. And, and that's the biggest lesson that I give Marines is when you submit yourself cr for critique, you're going to learn so much more from other people. And you know, whether it's good feedback or bad feedback, it's a learning process and it's about the learning process and that, and that, you know, um, and I enjoy that. I really do. I think that, I think that's a great way to put it. And, um, I, I think your emphasis on the value of critique is, is key. And, um, you know, for, for the record, you know, this Neil, but you know, for, for the listeners, um, when I do give criticism, I, I try to be very direct and kind of cut to the, to the heart of things, um, because I don't want to waste, the author's time. I don't want to waste Neil's time. And that's also, I think what I've had done for me. Um, shout out to Brendan McBreen, Eric Walters, Bruce Goodmanson. These are all, I think, fantastic writers, highly knowledgeable uh, Marines um, who just cut to the matter of things. And 
uh, it stinks sometimes. <laughs> it does. It doesn't always feel good. Um, but I'd rather had I'd rather hear it from them than be caught flat-footed by someone writing a reply right in in the gazette because i didn't um i didn't see that aspect of the conversation or i, I over i overlooked uh you know a, a particular part of the, the data um and you're right neil you you i think one one of the two ways you can really learn about something is to either teach it or write about it mm -hmm. that's that's been my experience if you really want to see what you know about something write about it um, so I think, I think that's phenomenal advice and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, if we could, Neil, I'd like to circle back to maneuver warfare. Um, when it comes to maneuver warfare, uh, have you had any aha moments? I know you've talked about the role that ISOLK has, has played, um, but if you could just expand on what were the turning points for you? You know, from being a young Lance Corporal <laughs> to a sergeant to now a gunny who's deployed multiple times, who's been to Syria. Um, what have been those moments where things seem to click where you said, okay, this makes sense? Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to, I'm trying to remember some personal experiences. Um, I think, uh, so uh, obviously uh, we've talked about it in length ISIL because in its entirety, my time there for the year and a half was an entire aha moment in, in maneuver warfare. Um, and I think a lot of my time at the, the Marine Rotational Force Darwin deployment, mm. that was a big one. That's, that's when I learned. And it was after that deployment that we had the conversation of giving the science to facilitate the art there were so many good um, because we were in the field so much and we did a lot of force on force exercise and there was hardly ever a dull moment like from on that deployment. You'd think that going to Australia would have so much liberty and it'd be so much free time. And yes, there was that time we did, you know, we did go out and we had fun and things like that, but there was a lot of training in there and especially the force on force exercises that, um, that really showed, okay, now these are the concepts that I talked about in ISOC for, for 18 months or 24 months or whatever it was. Now I see them in application, right? I can see the benefit of a 50, no, I'm sorry, a 40 kilometer movement under load all through the night to get to a specific objective, right? So, um, while that, you know, and, you know, two years prior to that, I'd be like, there's no reason you should have to move 40 kilometers on foot well, maybe the situation calls for it. You know what I mean? Maybe we don't need to take 75 vehicles on a road to transport this many people. Um, maybe it does call for a, for a pretty hellacious foot movement or something like that. So I think that deployment and those force on force exercises were a big part of me um, embodying uh, maneuver warfare in its physical mindset, right? Because we did a lot of planning and we got to analyze the situation a lot and we were like, okay, what's, what's going to be, uh, what do we think the best course of action is going to be amongst the lieutenants and the staff NCOs. Uh, and then I got to make a lot of decisions as, you know, as a platoon sergeant, which not often is not often the case. You know what I mean? Because it was force on force exercise and because I could be separated from my platoon commander at times, I got to exercise a little bit of, you know, command, um, uh, inside of the scenario, 
uh, where things started to make a lot of sense. And then uh, my deployment to Syria was another one, right? So I think we'll, you know, maybe we can kind of organically lead into the to the topic of about maneuver and attrition, right? Um, so, you know, MCDP1 talks about the dichotomy between maneuver and attrition and how it's so, you know, they're just, there's a line that separates the two. And that's not, that's not really the case, right? When you come down to, to our level in the infantry, uh, there's a lot of attrition. Like the, the, a lot of the goal is to kill as many of the bad guy as you can, right? Um, that's what we want to do or take away his resources or destroy his resources, whatever it is. So in Syria, in my particular situation, uh, we were eight months prior to me being on deployment, there was an armored attack on us forces at my site, right? Obviously it was with another infantry battalion and another set of special forces guys, but there was, you know, armored vehicles coming up an avenue of approach and they had to use, uh, air assets, surface fires, all kinds of stuff, you know, missiles from, from vehicle, from tow vehicles and things like that to destroy these armored assets. So that was always a threat when I was in country because in some places, you know, without going too much into the weeds, we were clicks away from Russian armored threats, right? I could, I'd be on a recon on an observation point and I could see, you know, um, APCs or BTRs transferring people to post, right? So, I think based on our estimates, we probably had like 35 armored assets that we had identified on the other side of the line. My site, we had, you know, maybe uh, we had 35 Marines uh, and then a special forces team. Um, and so part of the attrition, as somebody would call it, was me and my battalion commander having a conversation about how am I going to match the armored threat, right? Well, I'm going to need to collect that many number of missiles if I can, right? I have to have that many number of javelins and tow missiles in order to defeat. So at least a one for one, I had to have 35 missiles on my site so that I could defeat 35 pieces of armor. In my mind, that's very much the attritionish approach, right? I have to gather all of my resources at a specific time and I have to match their assets one for one, right? I think people would look at that as an attrition as attritionist aspect, I think. But it's not, right? It's um I had to meet the current threat and I had to acquire the amount of resources that I think it would be necessary to achieve, you know, destruction criteria against it. Where the maneuver comes into play is how I'm going to assist in the fire direction of those assets in an environment of chaos, friction, and disorder, right? That's where the maneuver comes into play. So it's not, I'm employing just an attritionist mindset or I'm employing, you know, a maneuver warfare aspect. It's how am I going to be able to combine both? How am I going to seek an advantage against the enemy and exploit critical gaps while also achieving destruction criteria on his resources so that he cannot reconstitute, mm. right? So I think that's where people get confused, um, where somebody thinks you're either a nutritionist or you're a maneuverist. Well, no, there's definitely attrition at the heart of warfare, um, you do have to, you know, when it comes down to it, you're going to have to kill somebody. Uh, and so I think that was another moment for me where it was just like, okay, that was another aha moment. I realized it's not just, um, 
it's not just one or the other. It can absolutely be both. Uh, even if from sometimes outside perspective, they might just think, yeah, you're just, you're just thinking about manpower and resources. No, I think that's, I think it's a really fascinating explanation. And it, it leads me to what does, what does MCDP one, what is this war fighting philosophy that we try to embody and, um, and apply in combat look like in garrison? Because that's, that's the question that I think eludes so many people. Um, we've got this sense that, well, we'll, we'll exploit the gaps and we'll, we'll avoid surfaces and all of this other stuff. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll act in a decentralized manner, but have a, a, a central vision and, and, and try to harmonize our efforts. Hey, that all, that sounds very good on the battlefield and seems to make a lot of sense, but MCDP one, if I'm not mistaken, is the general gray, uh, General Krulak, uh, after him, were saying this needs to be applied across the board, both on deployment and in garrison. So I'm, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on what that looks like? Have you seen it? Have you seen it done in garrison? Yeah, I mean, uh, everything that the Marine Corps is supposed to do, according to our doctrine, is prep for combat, right? That's, we are, we are a war fighting institution, no matter where that falls on the spectrum of warfare, if it's humanitarian assistance or if it's total war in itself, like we are an institution that is supposed to achieve, you know, or, or at least strive to achieve, um, proficiency in, in war fighting. We always should be looking to prep for combat. And so some of the principles of, of, of maneuver warfare, one being creating and exploiting opportunity, uh, in garrison there, it, Every single day, there is an opportunity to uh, to find a gap. Maybe it's a gap in the timeline, right? And then pull your resources together and run through that gap as fast as you can to try to get something done that's not, you know, bits back in the saddle training, you know, as, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So I think um, Creating and exploiting opportunity is absolutely a principle of maneuver that can be utilized, especially with regards to timelines and events while you're in garrison. You can always look to do something that's going to get you more prepared for combat. Um, a lot of people say, no, we have too much ad administrative stuff to do today. No, that's not true. Generally, Marines work 10, 12, 14 hour days, you know, uh, you know, you're up at 530 in the morning and generally the workday, you know, in my experience doesn't end until, you know, five, five thirty, six o'clock at night. Um, and, and that's because it, it's just days get that busy during pre-deployment training cycles. Not, they're not, they're not all like that, but a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can't tell me that 12 hours out of your day is completely filled with administrative things. So creating and exploiting opportunity in garrison is something that I think, um, should be practiced more often. Uh, to embody some of those principles. Um, also focusing your efforts, right? So that's a big one, shore punked, right? We, you know, let's use a, a term, term from dead German, dead German guys. Uh, fo focusing your efforts at, at the critical point. A lot of people spread themselves too thin and they try to do too many things at once um, or they're focused, they place too much emphasis on, on uh, 
on certain tasks that a think they, you know, a lot of people do it to make themselves look better, uh, to, for lack of better terms, kiss ass to senior enlisted people, um, to give the appearance of professionalism and discipline. Uh, and they, and they put too much effort and focus on those things, vice putting them and shifting them into the things that actually matter that are going to make your unit better. If you can take your guys out, if you can focus effort and take your guys out to the backyard for five or six hours out of the day and conduct training or conduct a sand table exercise or decision, decision forcing case and get them the tools that they need to effectively prep for combat. And when the day is over, shift your focus back to the administrative tasks that you might've busted some timelines on, but you stay later to get that stuff done. Right. That's another part where that's now you've created and exploited an opportunity for training. You've now focused your efforts into a place that actually matters. Uh, and then when the day is done and everybody goes home and the office is quiet, you can get some of your mundane tasks finished. Right. Um, and so, and, and these are things that you can pass on to, to squad leaders and team leaders is right. Look for, look for opportunities throughout the day to get, get things done that actually matter that are going to help these kids survive, you know, in a training environment or in combat. And that's, that starts to embody, you know, the maneuver warfare spirit, I think, um, as just a few examples. No, and I think they're very good ones. And, you know, as you're kind of passing on these, these thoughts and ideas, uh, I'd like to ask for a moment, you know, you're a former platoon sergeant, um, and I think we've got uh, squad leaders, fire team leaders, future platoon sergeants listening. Um, what did you expect of your squad leaders? What did you expect of your platoon commander, your company commander? I'm just curious to get your take um, from the perspective of a platoon sergeant. What did you expect these various leaders to be able to do and, and provide? <clears throat> So this is something that I learned uh, and learned a lot about in the last year or two years, especially with the adversity that I've gone through that, that, you know, you're very much aware of. Um, It's first, you have to have realistic expectations of Marines for one. I've heard, I've heard it put two different ways. It's funny. Some, a Sergeant Major once told me that they look at people or they look at Marines as a uniform. When they see a Marine, they see a uniform. Okay, very well. An infantryman told me when he looks at a Marine, he sees a flak and a Kevlar and an M4. Does anybody see a person? You know, uh, is, you know they're people. They're not just a flak and a Kevlar or a uniform. They're, they're a person. So, and you have to try to, try to understand them as individuals, uh, as a leader, you know, as a, as a platoon sergeant, you only have about 30 to 35 guys. It's not that many people to be in charge of and reach at an individual level. So understanding them as an individual will help, uh, make your expectations more realistic. Right. And then shifting to the squad leader, platoon commander and company commander, those Marines have already made it to a certain point where they have probably decided that they were going to dedicate themselves to the profession at arms. Um, you know, maybe not all young platoon commanders, but I think for the most part, those guys, uh, are, are really dedicated to being, you know, especially Oh three Oh two is really dedicated to being professional war fighters, squad leaders. I think, especially now that they're going to be older, right. You know, you can't be a Sergeant until after four years. And, you know, the part of the, 
maturity of the force and things like that. Um, they've already established that they have some sort of motivation and dedication to keep them going this profession. So I expect more of squad leaders, platoon commanders and company commanders. And the two categories that I put it in and that I always tell Marines is this physical fitness and mental proficiency. Everything we do falls into those two categories, right? So it's not just about the physical fitness. I'm not talking about just your Fran time for CrossFit or how much you can bench press, but it's just physical fitness across the spectrum of being a Marine, right? You know, can you also put a 90 pound pack on and move for 12 miles or whatever it is? Or can you pick up the Marine next to you and run him 450 meters to an LZ to, to evac him or whatever. And then mental proficiency is a dedicated plan to professionalizing yourself as a warfighter mentally, right? So you, if you give two hours a day to the gym or to physical fitness, you better give two hours a day to your mental studies. Right. And so I expect, um, and I place more emphasis on the mental side. I care, I care more about that. I care that I have somebody who's a little bit smarter because I can fix physical deficiencies. That's a pretty easy thing to fix, you know, a regimented training plan, things like that. But mental proficiencies take more time and I place more emphasis on that. And I expect that the things that you do, it's nice that, you know, you might want to do college on the side and things like that. Um, and it's good that you can... You, you know, if you're reading, reading what you enjoy is, is a nice thing to do. Um, and I all, and I absolutely encourage it, but I expect that the majority of your time be dedicated to developing yourself as a professional warfighter, because that is our job, right? I mean, it's more than a job and the guys under your charge deserve that, right? Especially nowadays, um, a lot of people think Marines aren't going to combat. Yes, they are. People are getting hurt. People are still dying um, overseas uh, in, in a number of different countries nowadays. And, uh, and it's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and that's, that's what we're charged to do. Squad leaders, platoon commanders, and company commanders are charged with the welfare uh, and the training of their Marines. And let no man's ghost say you, didn't, you wish you would have trained better, you know what I mean? Uh, or educated better or whatever it is. So of... That, this is kind of the conversation, you know, almost the exact same conversation that I'm having with you, I'll have with squad leaders and platoon commanders, and to a certain degree, my company commanders, uh, is that, that we, you know, there's more expected of us, especially in the realms of our mental state uh, as professional warfighters. I think those are, those are great words to, to meditate on. And Neil, you've been you know, incredibly generous with your time. We'll, we'll wrap up here with just a, a few more questions. And one I want to ask is what excites you most about the future direction of the Marine Corps? The initiative to be more soft, like, mm-hmm. um, not that I think the Marine Corps infantry should be special forces because I don't, because I think that there is, there's a reason that we have regular infantry forces and there's a reason that we have special forces. But I think that the soft community has identified better ways to do things, right? Better, more efficient ways to do things. And I think the initiative uh, to be more soft-like in our training, in our education, in our gear set, um, especially since we're such a, you know, a much smaller force, there's only 25,000 infantry Marines at any given time, uh, probably going to be less here pretty soon when some of these battalions go away. Um, 
that's what excites me the most is I think that best practices are finally getting around and people aren't just like, Oh, they do their special forces because you know, they, they only do that because they're special forces. No, a lot of these principles apply to any community, not, not even just the military to really any community. Um, but, but you know, those guys for the most part, uh, they, they really embody the spirit of a professional, you know? Um, and I, and I think the initiative to do that is, uh, is fantastic. You know, it's obviously fitting coming from, you know, general Berger being a former recon guy himself. So. Sure. That definitely makes sense. On the flip side of that, what worries you most about the future direction of the Marine Corps? Um, potential leadership, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's some folks out there that might be com might be in the running for commandant one day that uh, have told people in the Marine Corps that the American people wants an army of robots and that's what we're going to give them. Um, yeah. I won't say his name on this, but I'll text it to you. <laughs> uh, but um, that, that's a scary thing. And I've heard that more often than not more often than you think hmm. um is that so i'm super excited about these initiatives but something that worries me is that they won't carry forward hmm. at the higher levels hmm. i know my peers believe to their core the things that you and i are talking about these guys grew up in iraq and afghanistan syria wherever um they see the horrors of combat they see the horrors of a lack of training and education that can happen to people and they want to fix those things. I know that. So I'm not worried about necessarily um, my peers or even lower than us. Uh, I'm worried about the guys at the top who may not necessarily agree with all these initiatives and might not carry us forward into the future because the future is only going to continue to be more complex and more austere environments and we're going to get more disaggregated because if you look at historically you know maneuver warfare renaissance started everybody's talking about these cool things and cool ideas and then things kind of started to die down and then the war kicked off and now they're kind of building back up and i'm hoping that we can build back up and maintain and keep progressing and keep moving forward and not do this up and down ebb and flow of getting better trained and educated and then going back down and then getting better and then going back down. Um, you know, we got to stop training and recruiting to the average level. You know, we can't, you know, we, we can't expect that that, that average is going to win. It, it, it just can't be that way. Um, and, and I think in a small force like the Marine Corps infantry, you know, we can ask people, we can ask people that, you know, we can better recruit, we can better train, we can better educate, we can better manage talent. That's a huge thing. So that, so that we don't have to build an army of robots. We can build an infantry force of people who have sound judgment. They're critical thinkers. They're decision makers. Not that they question every order, but they understand implicit communication, you know what I mean? Intuitive gunfighters and things like that. Things that we think are going to be, you know, hopefully more successful in the future. I think that's, that's phenomenal. Neil, any final, you know, final parting thoughts or, or shots with, with our listeners? 
Um, I'd love to hear arguments. We certainly encourage yeah. them. And uh, yeah. we, in, in our, our next season, uh, we're going to, I think, ramp it up a bit and uh, invite people who, um, whether outside of the Marine Corps, who have, say, um, differing views from General Berger and his, his plans for uh, the force, uh, or you know, people who, who disagree with us uh, and, and want to challenge. Uh, so certainly invite that. But I, you know, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts and being so honest and, and straightforward. It's, it's, uh, it's exactly in line with, with who I know you to be. And um, I think a lot of our listeners are, are going to find you know, value and benefit from you coming on and, and talking with us and would love to have you back in the future to, to kind of dig deeper into some of these topics. Thanks, brother. I had a good time. It was good. Awesome. Neil, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon, and thank you again. Okay. See you, Damien. All right. Bye-bye.